0: And <laughs> uh, I would have people who were new to Christianity, new to Lutheranism, new to Grace Church, want to know about the basic truths. How do I connect with God? What did God do for me? That's our 101 course, uh, Back to the Basics, People Close to God. And then after that, as people finished up, it was not unusual for people to say, what's next? And my response back then would be, well join the church (laughs) Um, but what they were asking is what do we study next so that was the genesis for this i wanted to have a survey of the entire bible so people who know and believe in jesus know the bible is true but want to but maybe never read it or read it all the way through or read certain books well this course is divided two-year cycle old testament and new we're in the new testament cycle this year where i'm going to provide for you background information on the history the structure the purpose for each of the bible books you get to read them and i know that new testament course a little easier than old because some of the books are so long (laughs) but uh, try your best in reading them and don't feel guilty if you don't get all the way through a book like if we say we're going to do the book of acts which is you know 26 chapters if you don't get all the way through it that's okay And uh, we'll highlight whatever things you come across in your reading the next week with your questions. And this year, I'll be introducing some portions that we'll be looking at each week and then take your questions near the end. So try to fill up the hour that way. So the real purpose, then, is not only to answer that question, what's next, and study the Bible, but why do we study the Bible? So that we see Jesus more clearly. It's all about Him. It's all about our Savior and our connection to God through Jesus Christ. To trust Him more dearly, to grow in our knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, and to gain confidence and ability in personal Bible reading, so that you can be able to say, well, you know, the letter of James, I remember that, yeah, that was a practical letter about Christian living that matches Jesus' sermon on the mountain, I'm going to spend some time reading it this summer, or this next month, or this vacation, or whatever, and then you have material in the notebook that you have some notes and background information that you can Peg who James was, why he wrote what he wrote. That makes sense? So each week, as I said, we'll have an assigned portion to read. You can jot some notes and questions. And when we get together, all questions are legal. There's no such thing as a dumb question. You can ask anything you want. It may even be off topic. That's okay. And we're going to try to answer uh, then some assigned questions that I have for each lesson. And if we don't get to those, that's fine. We're going to introduce then uh, the next reading, the next section or book. Depending on what it is. Any questions on that so far? I thought tonight, for diving in, if you have your notebooks handy, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, this, this part is not necessarily in your notebook. You all have a notebook and, and it starts with intertestamental history. I'm going to talk briefly on that. But This is not in your notebook. I just wanted to do a quick review of the structure for Scripture. And uh, many of you are very familiar with this. And if not, that's okay. So, by the way, Trivial Pursuit, does anybody know the number of books that are in the Old and New Testament? (laughs) Trivial Pursuit here. You you know, your eternal salvation doesn't depend on this number. But, you know, do you know, Jonathan? Yeah, 39 old and... Twenty-seven new, yeah, sixty-six total. And this one you many of you will know, the original language of the Old Testament books, Hebrew, New Testament, Greek. And proximate dates about a thousand years. The Old Testament books were written over a span of a thousand years. The New Testament, a much shorter time frame, a span of about fifty years. And that's what we're gonna be looking at these Wednesdays, with New Testament books. The purpose for the Old Testament books, the Savior is coming. In the New Testament, the Savior has come. It really is all about Jesus Christ and that he is the center and the focus of all of Scripture. So we can have a relationship with God. There's no other way that will happen. You can't have a connection with God. You can't end up in eternity with him. You can't even live and cope with all the stuff in life right now, having a nice relationship with God. You can't have that unless the Lord Jesus is your Savior, and he is. That's why the scriptures are written. The structure for the New Testament, this is not the order of the books that you find in the New Testament, but how we're going to read them. So we will look at the Gospels and then the book of Acts. We'll do the Gospels together, sort of a harmony, sort of an actual harmony of Jesus' life and ministry. And then we're going to look at the other New Testament books chronologically. Actually, James and Galatians will go together. They're the earliest New Testament books, in my opinion. And then you can see the sequence there, the letters of Paul followed by all the other letters. That's the sequence we'll be doing. And you can see that on the um, schedule I also handed out. Here's some background information for New Testament reading. When I was um, younger and in school days, I really didn't have a grasp on how this all fit together and why. Because I knew, because you memorized this from little on, if you were in a Lutheran school, that is uh, the order of the Bible books. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and say them real fast, right? Like two old beef patty, special sauce, a little cheese, pickles, onions, and sesame seed bun. And um, then you memorize the New Testament ones. But what happened in between? The Old Testament closes around 450, 430 B.C., and then the Lord Jesus is born uh, around 4 B.C., 5 B.C., somewhere in there. They pegged the calendar centuries later. And missed a little bit. So that's okay. So that means he has a 30, he's 30 years old when he starts his ministry and three year public ministry and he dies at age 33. So that's like 29 or 30 AD-ish around there. But what happens in between? That 400-year break, that 450-year break, what's going on? Um, I used to think, well, not much, (laughs) but there was a lot going on, and it helps us understand the New Testament when we think through the sequence. About 500 years, a little more, before the promised Savior is visibly on earth, God's plan to send a Savior was to do that through a nation he created basically from scratch. He had said, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, you deserve to go to hell, but I'm not going to do that. You're stuck in Satan's clutches. I'm going to get you out of his clutches, back into my family, even though you don't deserve it, and I'm going to do that by sending one descendant of the woman to come and crush the devil's power. And when that's happening, and you trust that, even before it's happening, you're going to be connected to me. So how's he going to do that? Well, he could have snapped his divine finger is a poof, there's the Savior. He could have done that, but he didn't. He chose to send the Savior into the world in his own unique way by creating a nation basically out of nothing. He starts with one guy. He says, Abraham, I'm going to start with you and your wife, Sarah. Abraham was no great shakes, neither was Sarah. They're sinners like us. But from Abraham comes eventually a son, and then that son has the grandsons, and then there's more, and then eventually tribes and a nation. And that nation is to hold the promise of the Savior. Until the Savior is born, they can still exist as a nation if they want, but their purpose has ended. That's why God designed that nation. Well, in order for that nation to exist... It had to start from one or two, Abraham and his wife, and their descendants eventually end up in Egypt because God knew, and God's pretty smart, that the people living in the land where he wanted them geographically to live were filthy, gross, inappropriately behaved people. They just were awful. And it would be pretty easy... God knew, for Abraham and his descendants to absorb their behavior, their culture, their attitudes, and to forget about him. So he found a way to get this family moved to protective custody in Egypt. A lot of you know the story. Abraham's uh, great-grandson ends up there as prime minister, and the family comes down and lives and grows from 70 to 2.5 million over a span of 400 years. Their status changed from favored people in Egypt to slavery. So God sends Moses to get them out and then back to the promised land where they're going to live. You'd think that this great nation now would be eternally grateful for that rescue. And always with that in their background, rescue from slavery, looking forward to rescue from slavery from sin. You'd think that they're going to be attuned and faithfully follow their Lord. No. They consistently demonstrated inappropriate Uh, sinful, wicked, rebellious, crooked behavior. So, what's God going to do? He could have kicked them to the curb and started over, but God is God, and he makes promises and he keeps them. I'm going to send the Savior for this nation. So he sends messengers to call them back. Sometimes they listened, many times they didn't. Eventually this nation established itself in the promised land geographically where he wanted them. And... uh, Even God allowed them to have kings so that they could have spiritual care and administrative political care and leadership. But after the first two, David and Solomon, the first one was really Saul and he was terrible, but the two big ones, David and Solomon, after Solomon died, the nation split in two with civil war. And then they were always rivals. And the northern part got really, really bad. I mean really bad as in, horrible idolatry and God decided to wipe them out and the Assyrian nation came and they're gone. A few few people were left. The southern part of the nation remained for another 150 years or so and eventually they too were demonstrating this behavior. Stick your tongue out at God, do what we want, worship idols. So instead of wiping them out, he uses the Babylonians to discipline them and to destroy Uh, their homes, their temple, their city, and deport the people and scatter them in Babylon. The idea is not that they would be in slavery or in prison. It's not that they would be beaten. The Jewish people, the Israelites, living out in Babylon had pretty decent lives. Some of them were administrators of the Babylonian government. (laughs) They fared pretty well. And the Babylonians assumed that they'd be separate from each other and just absorbed into Babylonian culture. didn't happen. Because God said through the prophet Jeremiah, after 70 years, those that desire, I'm going to bring back to the promised land. So the Babylonians are the first piece of this. What happened during the Babylonian um, exile away from the promised land was that they are now separate from the worship geographical spot where God told them to gather, Jerusalem. They're separate from that and the temple. It's gone. It's destroyed. So what happened was also that meant that the function of the priests among the Israelites who were na- mainly there to offer sacrifices, they, they ceased to function. They, they were there, but they're, they're no, there's no Jerusalem, there's no sacrifice. So there were lay leaders who really studied, uh, in their opinion, the Old Testament scriptures, and they started gathering people and being teachers in Babylon in small groups. In small towns large towns but in, in groups and um, those groupings and that pattern of, of Israelites gathering in smaller groups continued from the captivity back when they moved back to the promised land and I'll talk about that in a second but God's purpose in using the Babylonians was up and the next world power that came in were the Persians. So on the map that you have up there you can see that's the Middle East and extends all the way through modern day Iran almost to India. Very powerful world power and they wiped out the Babylonians and took over. And after the Persians then the Greek empire. M- many of you know and have heard of the name Alexander the Great. So he comes flying out of Greece through what we called Asia Minor Turkey and heads all the way out through the Persian Empire, conquering them. And when he, he actually, this is about 300 years before Jesus, um, he was a younger man, but he died on the way back. And his territory that's up on the map in the screen in gray was divided in four chunks by his generals. But this is a significant thing for us as Christians and as Bible readers and as understanding how the New Testament works. Alexander and his uh, conquering forces not just, you know, took over, but they spread Greek culture. And the Greek culture was highly advanced. Science, math, uh, medicine, art, literature, highly advanced culture, and that spread to the point where even when Alexander's dead and it's divided up among his generals, the Greek culture was embedded into everybody else's life, psyche, and mindset. So no matter where you lived following that Greek dominance, you might still be Egyptian and speak Coptic, but you'll also speak Greek. If you're in Syria, you'll speak Syrian, but you'll also speak Greek. If you're in Israel, after the Babylonian captivity, Hebrew, not as well known. It got mushed together with Chaldeic language and became known as Aramaic. It's kind of a, it's not gutter talk, but it's a more common use of Hebrew. It's the language Jesus and the disciples used. The regular talk of, it's not formal Hebrew. It looks the same on a piece of paper, but Aramaic. You spoke Aramaic, but you also spoke Greek. God sets the stage. So after the use of the Greeks, and there was an interesting little piece of information coming in a second, the Roman Empire takes over. And they were very, very intelligent administrators. They did not wipe out Greek culture and practices, but maintained it so this high level of knowledge of science and art and math and the the romans adapted that while they might be speaking latin or writing in latin they would also now use the greek cult they also built freeway systems throughout their empire so you can get on i-94 you know and scoot right across asia minor and take the ferry over to northern greece and you know you're on i-80 or whatever and drop your toll and away you go you know That's what the Romans did. They were also very good at maintaining peace in the sense of um, policing their conquered lands. So as long as you paid your taxes, you could self-rule. But if you rebelled, you're in trouble. So in Latin, we use the term pax romana, the peace of Rome. So this is now when God says, time's right, time's right. Now I can send my son into the world. So when Jesus accomplishes his perfect life and his payment for sin, dies and comes back to life, eventually makes himself invisible, he sends his followers out on Roman highways under Roman protection until persecution started, and in the Greek language. The New Testament is written in Greek to the point where A lot of the Jewish people who were living by Jesus' day, uh, none of them weren't familiar with Hebrew at all. They might know some Aramaic, and so they needed to have their Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek. That had been done a couple hundred years before. It's called the Septuagint. So the apostles of Jesus knew Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. They also knew Greek, and they wrote in Greek. So the New Testament that we're going to study was originally in Greek by these Jewish dudes. That's my quick history background thing. So I'm going to jump ahead. So when the the Greek empire um, was taken over by the Romans, shortly before the Romans came in, two of the Greek generals are significant for us New Testament people in in reading the New Testament. Seleucus and Ptolemy were two of the generals, and the Seleucids had the sort of Asia Minor, Syria chunk, and the Ptolemies, Egypt, and they were rivals after a while. Guess what's right in between the territory of the Ptolemies and the Seleuc- Seleucids, who are descendants of these these Greek? What's right in between? Yep, the Holy Land. So this was this was uh, battleground, and for a while. The Seleucids up north would take over, and then the Ptolemies and their descendants—these are names of their like kings, Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second—they they would take over, and then they'd fight over this whole. And the Holy Land always, you know, they, they got the they got the business in between. One of the worst ever was a Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the fourth, and he was so. Um, so anti the true God, and what the Israelites were worshiping that he did everything possible to to um, step on them and make them bad feel bad and terrible, that he even desecrated the temple and slaughtered a pig on the altar at the temple. Now you have to remember that according to Jewish laws and God's laws that you can't eat pork, right? There's no bacon. There's no, there's no uh, bratwurst from pork products. and You just can't have that if you're Jewish. And he's actually, I mean, that would be like putting a urinal in our church. I mean, that's how gross that was. People just get nauseated to think about how, how gross. Yeah, this is terrible. And there was a bit of a rebellion among the Israelites against this, uh, this Seleucid king, this Greek king. And they did have a bit of a measure of independence for a couple decades until the Romans came in. This all sets the stage for what's going to be happening in the New Testament. And uh, under the Romans, they did allow the Jewish people to have self-rule as long as they paid taxes. And so the, the man who emerged as in charge of the Jewish land was a dude named Herod. And those of you who've done some Bible reading and study know that name, Herod the Great especially. He's the guy who killed the babies of Bethlehem. But he was called Herod the Great because he actually was quite an administrator. And he did quite a bit to build up Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, structures around the Temple Mount. And so he got admired for that. But personally, he was very... um, anxious and nervous about anybody he even killed some of his own sons thinking they would take over the throne terrible guy he had multiple marriages and multiple sons and these herods pop up in the new testament herod archelaus is mentioned briefly when jesus as a baby is fleeing from herod the great's sword uh, where he was killing the babies of bethlehem they were in egypt for a bit And then Joseph takes his wife and baby back. But Archelaus was on the throne, so he went up north where they came from. Herod Antipas is the guy who killed John the Baptist and was standing there when Jesus was on trial. Uh, There's another guy named Philip who was uh, plays a little bit part in the New Testament story. Another son, Aristobulus, had Herod Agrippa first, and Herod Agrippa II, and they show up in our New Testament, Testament reading persecuting Christians or when Paul was arrested and going to Rome. It's a little complicated. I do believe that in your notebook, when you get past all these opening pages I've been talking about, and you get to page, the new notebook, it should be on page uh, 8, I believe, in the old notebook it might be 6. But there is in real small print the Herodian line, if you wanted to pursue that a little bit more. righty. If you have that notebook then, those of you who got a new one, it's page 9 and the old format was 7. This is some little trivia too for you. If you wanted to read the entire New Testament, it would take you 70 hours and 40 minutes. The entire Bible, I should say. The Old Testament, about 52 hours. And the New Testament, you can do in 18 hours. So if you want to go home tonight and stay up all night, you can read the whole New Testament in about 18 hours. This is not speed reading. This is just normal-paced reading. 27 books, 260 chapters, 8,000 verses about. I find it interesting, and you might too, that the name Jesus is used 700 times in the Gospels and Acts and less than 70 in the letters. But his title, Christ, shows up in the gospel 60 times in 240 in the New Testament letters. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. And uh, is it helpful to do a quick review on that? Jesus means... Jesus means Yehoshua in Hebrew and Jesus in Greek. Jesus means Savior. Savior. And Christ, his title means anointed one you can say it in Hebrew Messiah Messiah or you can say it in Greek Christos Christ both of them mean anointed one anointed one what in the Old Testament days there were jobs and you didn't start them unless you had an anointing ceremony a prophet a priest and a king Jesus is the one designated anointed by God the Spirit to be the perfect anointed one prophet priest and king it's his title Like President Biden. Biden the name, president the title. You can say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Either way, Jesus is the name, Christ is the title. The word gospel, if you go into a little bit of a research etymologically on how that word came to be, you might recognize in there good spell. Good tidings, good news gospel gospel means good news so here's an interesting little bit of trivia for you too when we refer to Matthew Mark Luke and John as the gospels we spell that word gospel with a capital G the gospel according to St. Matthew capital G that's the title of the book the gospel according to St. Mark the gospel according to St. John Capital G. If we use it in the t- sense of good news, the Bible has two main teachings from cover to cover bad news and good news, law and gospel, then it's small g. So when you're sending your emails out and you want to have that difference, then you know you can do that. There are four gospels in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you're in your notebook, And I'm going to introduce this. This is on page 10 in the new notebook, 8 in the previous one. Here's something fun that I put in the notebook. I think you can see it if you're on that same page with me. There's 28 chapters in Matthew, 16 in Mark, 24 in Luke, 21 in John. But look at the percentage that's devoted to Holy Week, which starts Palm Sunday, And goes through that week until Good Friday, and he dies, and he's buried, and he rises from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. John's gospel, it's almost half, is for Holy Week, isn't that something? So put it all together, you've got 33% of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are on Holy Week. And rightly so. (laughs) It's what it's all about, the culmination of God's plan of saving us, and that's the featured part. Are these books history or biography? How would you answer that? Both. But when you th- hear the word biography, Pete, what do you normally think of? Story of someone's life. Story of someone's life. And uh, the Gospels, we would might assume are biography of Jesus, but actually not, because we'd have more information about his childhood. Then there's only a couple stories about his childhood. It's really salvation history. That's what these Gospels are. Um, we get a few accounts from when he's a child. One, when he's 12 years old, that's, that's in the window on the north side in church, right? But it's mostly about his ministry and then his death and resurrection. Salvation history. Then something fun that we, uh, you'll pick up on as you go. We're going to be reading, we're going to be reading these Gospel accounts um, we're going to be reading these gospel accounts as a harmony, but I want to talk about the little uniqueness of the synoptics. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered synoptic gospels. And here's here's a big word for you that you know you you may never say again. But um, big words they come from Latin or they come from Greek. This is from Greek. So in the Greek language, syn or sym always means together or with. And I'm looking at my friend, Don, and you know what OPT is. OPT. Optics would have to do with the, I know you were working with teeth in your career, but I thought you'd know. Optics would have to do with your eyes, your eyes. right. So synoptic is the same viewpoint, looking at it from the same angle. Sorry for picking on you, Don. No, that's okay. <laughs> Dr. Don works with teeth, but optics are ophthalmology, and that's all with the eyes in Greek. So what do we mean by that? Each of the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the ministry, life, and death of Lord Jesus, but they all have their own style, and I'll talk about that in a second, and yet they're viewing it, I like to say it this way, they're viewing his life and ministry, death, and resurrection from the same side of the street, John is on the other side of the street, looking at the same thing. He is not viewing Jesus' ministry the same way the other three are. If we did not have John's gospel and just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would figure that Jesus' ministry is about a year and a half. John is the one who supplies information about Jesus' visits down south of Jerusalem, especially marking festivals like the Passover. And when John mentions a Passover, you go, oh, because the Passover happened once a year in the spring. When he mentions another Passover, ah, a year went by. He mentions another Passover, oh, another one. So when he starts his ministry, Passover is mentioned. That's the beginning. And then another Passover in John, ah, a year went by. And then the second year and the third year. By the time we're done, there are four Passovers mentioned. The beginning, after year one, after year two, after year three, four. And John helps us understand that Jesus' ministry is three years. Done. Well, how does Luke view this since he wasn't there? He's just getting accounts from other people. Luke Luke got his information uh, directly from the Apostle Paul. And Paul himself got his from Jesus directly. Jesus appeared to him. And Luke hung out with Paul. But I mean his viewpoint is... Yeah, it would be... Right. The it's a, he, wasn't in the he wasn't there in the street. Right, right. And and Mark was maybe as a younger man. He very likely is Mark is very likely the guy who was the young man that they tried, you know, to grab his robe when Jesus is getting arrested and he fled, quote, naked. You know, he's probably got his underwear on, right? You know, that's Mark. Matthew was one of the twelve. He was right there watching it all happen. John was one of the twelve, and yet the style of writing and what they communicate, John is, quote, on the other side of the street. Luke's perspective, even though he gets his information from Paul, is the same as Matthew and Mark. But they all have their own little flavor, too. So um, I'll do that this way. And I have this uh, in your notebook on the bottom of this page. This is fun stuff for us to think through, okay? So what about Matthew? Matthew's writing probably in the 50s AD. My opinion, he's the earliest of the Gospel writers. He is a Jew writing to Jews. He is an Israelite writing to Israelites. Therefore, it is his goal to demonstrate to his fellow Israelites, who by and large had rejected Jesus, who is also Jewish and an Israelite, right? But they rejected him. We don't want you as Savior. The Romans are over us. We've been oppressed ever since the Babylonians. And then the Persians. Then the Greeks. Now the Romans. And we, we want to be great like we were under King David a thousand years ago. Please, dear God, send a Messiah. Please send a Messiah. We want a Messiah. And we want him to be an earthly king so that he can wipe out the Romans and set up his throne in Jerusalem. And we'll have a couple of chariots in every garage and a couple of a lamb in the pot and we'll all be happy and we will not have to work anymore. That's what we want. No taxes. Vacation time. That's what we're going to do. So God, please send that Messiah. Well, this, this urge for an earthly king, Messiah, started when they were oppressed. Under the Babylonians, under the Persians, under the Greeks, under the Romans. And when they started drifting away from their Bibles... Which clearly, Old Testament, very clearly, very clearly, God says and promise after. There's some 330 predictions about the coming Savior in the Old Testament. They all come true in Jesus. If you pay attention, you're going to say, he's a spiritual Savior. He's an eternal king. He's God in human flesh. Come from, the Old Testament made it perfectly clear. But if you ignore those promises, if you ignore the Bible and drift away, you're going to go with what is your gut sense. I can save myself, I don't really need a savior, my sin isn't that bad, and what I really want is to have a nice life. Eternity, well, that would be okay, but right now, I want to have money in my pocket and my bank account and a nice retirement and a big house and a condo in the Mediterranean. I want to have that. I want to go kayaking on the Jordan. I just, not the Dead Sea, that's too gross, but I'll go fishing in the Sea of Galilee. That's what I'll do. That's what I want to do. And then I want to have health. I don't want COVID. I don't want to get sick. I don't want any of this stuff. I don't want leprosy. I just want somebody to come in and take care of me so I can have a nice, easy life. Eternity, yeah, I'll get there because I'm pretty good. I only take the name of the Lord in the vein like once in a while. I'm pretty good at taking care of my family. I work pretty hard. And uh, I only kick the dog once a week. I'm really not that bad. So, God, please send a Messiah so I can have a really nice life. Jesus shows up. He doesn't look like a king on a stallion with a big you know, army behind him and a spear and a lance and a helmet on his head. And he doesn't wipe out Roman soldiers. He looks like a traveling preacher, poor, doesn't own any real estate, doesn't have a big house, doesn't have any, relying on handouts walking around with guys from up north, where, you know, the, the, the guys who didn't really talk really good, they're from up north there in Galilee. They go bowling, you know, drink a few beers with the guys. That's the disciples there, you know. <laughs> they eat cheese curds <laughs> and sausage like tonight. There's only one intelligent guy in the disciples who went to the University of Jerusalem, got his CPA degree, Judas, the only one who was worth anything. <laughs> they had other guys in that disciple crew. I mean, seriously, Simon the Zealot. He's got bandoliers on. He's got a knife between his teeth. He's got the headband. He was a guerrilla warfare fighter. That's what his life's job was. And there was a tax collector who was like scum, like prostitutes. They're on the bottom level. Rich, filthy rich for being cheaters. But that's, that's the disciples. <laughs> And then Jesus goes up to these people who are in Israel and says, You want a Messiah? I'm the one. No. Yes. In fact, you've got to believe in me or you're going to burn in hell. What? No. You don't look like any kind of Messiah we want. And then you're sinners. No, we're not. Yes, you are. You're children of the devil. No, we're not. Yes, you are. Your father is Satan. Unless you trusted me, you're damned. They hated him. So... Matthew is writing to prove to his fellow Israelites he really is the Messiah. He really is descended from Abraham. That's how his book starts, tracing the line from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. He really is the royal king promised the Messiah. And Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than anybody else. He also arranges his gospel in a Hebraistic fashion. There's groupings of threes, of f- five stories, seven parables, ten. you know, this is how Matthew writes. He writes in a Hebraistic style, not as much chronological as others. He's very stately in his style. Matthew's gospel, you just get that sense of the, uh, the God-man, here he is, the Messiah, it's just, oh, wow. Wow. Um, the stories are a little bit shorter than in other gospel writers, they're there. And he has over 50 Old Testament quotations, more than any other gospel writer. Why? Because he's proving to these people, fellow Israelites, here's the Old Testament, if you paid attention, it predicted this. And he writes it out. Here it is. He's a Jew writing to Jews. But he's one of the synoptics on this side of the street looking at Jesus' ministry. He uses the word king and kingdom 43 times. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. His kingdom is not a place like they wanted. It's God's loving activity in your heart and mind. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your your kingdom come. Bring your love into my heart and others. That's what the kingdom is. It's not a place. It's God's loving activity, work in his message of love in our hearts. Mark, oh, he's very Judaic and Hebraistic. I said that already. Uh, Mark writes around 65 A.D., the apostle Peter, he traveled around with, and there's a very Petrine flavor to Mark's gospel he's the son of God in action now you think about this some of you who are Bible readers and if you don't know this this is okay Uh, Peter one of Jesus initial disciples was very calm quiet shy reserved he never leaped before he looked right he was this uh, no (laughs) just the opposite right always foot in the mouth you know (laughs) Lord I'll never deny you (laughs) duh, right? Hey, I, can I walk on water? Sure, come on <laughs> takes his eyes off Jesus, down he goes, you know, that's, that's Peter, right you know, he's got a, and Mark is hanging out with Peter all these years and when he writes, he'll write a story, it's longer, than. there's details and there's action, you just have this sense of liveliness and that's, that, he doesn't tell all the stories, the ones he tells, boy oh boy, vivid details, dramatic short but graphic, his gospel is only 16 chapters Uh, There's Romanisms. You know, Peter traveled all around the empire and had an understanding of these people who were not Jewish, right? And so Mark will use terms that Roman people could understand. And the influence of Peter I mentioned already. The passions details are amazing in Mark's gospel. They all record it. Luke, am I going too fast? Am I going too fast? Luke writes 58, 59-ish. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And there was a time, I believe, when it was probably likely that he picked up a lot of his information. The Apostle Paul was under arrest in the Holy Land for a couple years. Later on, taken to Rome. Luke could have spent some more time there. Luke's style, he is the Savior of all. He has a, he's a physician. He has an eye for the kids, the down and out, the sick, the widows, the poor, the little grandmas and grandpas. He has an eye for that. His heart of, and it's a very warm uh, and winsome style when you read Luke's gospel. Matthew, stately, Hebrewistic organized in threes, five, sevens. Mark, action. Luke, winsome. The Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree and a savior is born. So, even though he's hanging out with a bunch of Jews, and he's a Gentile, he was always accepted. Yes. Yeah. And, he's a Gentile. He might have had Hebrew background. Oh, I thought he was a Gentile. Yeah. He's writing to a Gentile who was funding the project. His friend, Theophilus. No, I, I think Luke, we would say, would be a Jewish person. I, yeah. I, that's been my impression always. The reason I say that is because Paul had another companion who wasn't. And he, you know, the debate on circumcising him or not was a question about Titus, you know. So... Um, Luke is more chronological than the others. So, whenever I want to peg what's happening in Jesus' three year ministry in order, I usually go to Luke to make sure I'm on track. He's more chronological than the others. Uh, the influence of the Apostle Paul I mentioned. Am I going too fast again? Okay. John's gospel is the last, somewhere between 90 and 100 AD. And his style is different than the others. He is demonstrating clearly Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. A, a spiral style where he he has a topic on light and life and fellowship and comes around and says it again and comes it around and says it again and then this it's very unique very simple language even in the original Greek it's very simple and easy to read. But soaring in deep thoughts. So he waited a, a long time before he wrote uh-huh. his uh, yeah. His, his three letters and the Revelation and the Gospel are near the end of his career. Uh-huh. He's the last. Can Others you your thoughts on that. Um, I don't know if there's any reason why God is the one who's going to breathe into him the words and here's what you're going to be writing. But uh, he uh, he had a career where he was in charge of the churches around Ephesus. And he was exiled on an island, and then he's writing, and then back in the Ephesus area, but later than others. I don't know if there's any special reason for that. It's interesting how God designed it. Yeah. In history, um, there have been symbolic terms from the last book of the Bible, picture book, that people have associated with the gospel writers. Matthew is pictured as a winged man. Uh, Mark is the winged lion. You know, the drama. Uh, Luke, the winged bull, the sacrificial work of Jesus for the Savior of all. And John is the eagle. When you go to St. John's on the hillside, our neighboring church across the river, and you go inside this massive, they're a lot bigger even than our building, but their lectern, St. John's, is an eagle. We have an angel in grace. You know, they have a, it's kind of cool. So, what we're going to do here, I just wanted to make sure you have a little flavor on the Gospels. On the next page, there's a key passage I have, usually for each book, and there's one theme passage for each of the Gospels. If you want to take a look at the bottom of page 11, which is 9 in the old notebook, here's the sequence we're going to be studying. This coming week, if you would read through the early years, the references I'll show you on an outline, and then come back and ask whatever. I had sent an email saying if you have questions about Christmas we can start already today, but we only have a few minutes left. And we'll pick that up next week. Then the Nazareth and early Judean ministry, that's year one. The Capernaum ministry of Jesus up north is year two. The travel ministry is year three. We'll explain that later. And the final ministry is Holy Week. That's what's going to happen in the next Wednesdays. You have in your notebook an outline for each of the Gospels. And when you get to page 15, the old notebook should be like 13, I think. Those are the, that's the outline for the early years. And here's what I'd like you to do. Your assignment would be, if I get there, here's the early years. I just talked about that. And geography of Palestine is nice to be acquainted with that. A little hard to see on that map. Um, from the Mediterranean, you go uphill, and there's a ridge of hills, a spiny ridge of hills from north to south, right in the middle, and then it drops off dramatically to the Jordan River Valley below sea level. It just drops And your assignment is to read the references. So if you're looking on page 15, you'll see that I have an outline of three announcements, Mary's visit and so on. And then over on the side, you'll see the Bible references. So you'll be reading the first couple chapters of Luke and Matthew, especially if you look down the list and then come with questions. Does that make sense? Page 15, this is a reading? That's, those are the readings that, yeah. And you can basically read, if you check the list there, it's basically chapters 1 and 2 of Luke and part of 3, and then Matthew. Does that make sense? And then you'll have, uh, these will be familiar for some of you, but that's okay. You might have other, if you don't have questions for me, I'll have some for you. That's also in the notebook on the next page. That's on page... Page, is that page 16? About, I think so. How about pages 12 and 13? All these uh, early years outlined for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Are we supposed to read those too? No, no, that's just showing you how the books are structured. Uh, On pages 12 and 13 in the new notebook, that's just showing you how I would outline these books. If I were outlining them, and so I did, and I put them there. This is how they're structured. But the reading assignment is underneath, or it's on page 15 where it says early years. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense for everybody? Those online, if you have questions, you can text them in to Jeff Hatsung. We'll get your phone number up there for people to find it. anybody have anything they wanted to ask? No questions. Okay, yeah. So uh, there are still a couple of snacks. And there's water and stuff if you want to just hang out. I'll take maybe just, we got maybe a minute, I'll cheat a little bit. Does anybody want to ask anything about stuff that I just introduced? Or maybe you did read a couple of things related to the early years or Christmas accounts? think you could think of? Could certainly save them for next week, but anybody come across anything? Pete, yeah. More about history. Yeah. So, history. These empires at this yeah. time in the world. History. Yeah. That's really where the concentration of the world and the population is, and really what's going on there. Concentration of the population of the world, actually, um, that's what we have in the Bible accounts, and that's why we refer to them. But there's people all over the globe. And that happened with the Tower of Babel. So, um, the Tower of Babel, you know, where the flood account it's it's hard to actually pin dates specifically but if if i had a gun to my head i always go in in round numbers so i can remember stuff abraham is 2000 bc moses 1500 david 1000 captivity 500 jesus 0 so you got to go before abraham flood maybe 2300 bc and shortly after the flood that's when People are repopulating, but they're they're not doing what God said. You get out of the barge, Noah, his wife, three boys and their wives, eight people, be fruitful and multiply, like he told Adam and Eve, right? And so now, you're supposed to fill the earth. That's what God, go. Well, they build this tower, and when I was a little kid, somebody told me they're trying to build their way up to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. If you read the actual account, they built it so to make a name for themselves look how what a skyscraper we can build but also not to get lost so you take a walk you can always get back because you can see the tower and so god said scatter fill the earth they said no we're going to stay together He said you know we're going to stay together Uh uh-uh you're going to move so he smashes the tower changes their languages and they have to move because then you say to me pass the brick to build the tower and i hear blah, 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 blah. you know i i don't get that right so we have to live apart and that's when people start spreading chapter 10 of genesis shows how nations spread out and so there are people in asia in africa in you know people groups are moving and by the time you get to like the babylonian captivity 550 there's buddha doing his thing in india and china That's 550 BC. So there's lots and lots of people all over the globe. We're looking at this because it has an impact on the New Testament, just those world powers. You could spend quite a bit of time, I bet, studying ancient civilizations in Asia or Africa. They're they're there. Uh, it's, It's interesting how people movements happen. But after the flood, that's when people moved all over. And now it's our thrill to take this good news and take it around the globe to those people. So all right. Well thanks everybody for your time. we we'll look forward to seeing you. Got key cards uh six thirty next week, same time, same station. And depending on campus ministry schedule, uh, we might not be here. We might be in the classroom downstairs. So get ready for when you come in their key card will get you in either level. And you can either elevator or on the first level. We might be in the classroom where we normally would be doing this. But tonight we had to spread out a little bit so Because of the rummage sale coming up this weekend. And all the tables in the classroom are gone. They're here. So we're here tonight. Thank you people online. Thank you people for coming. Help yourselves with some more snacks. And say hi to each other on your way out. Have a great night. See you in church.